Chapter 11, Section 12, Part 1 of Bulldog Drummond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. Bulldog Drummond by Sapper Herman Cyril McNeil. Chapter 11, Part 1, in which Lakington plays his last coup. Toby, I've got a sort of horrid feeling that the hunt is nearly over. With a regretful sigh, Hugh swung the car out of the sleeping town of Goldoming in the direction of Laidley Towers. Mile after mile dropped smoothly behind the powerful two-seater, and still Drummond's eyes wore a look of resigned sadness. Very nearly over, he remarked again, and then once more the tedium of respectability positively stares us in the face. You'll be getting married, old Bean, murmured Toby Sinclair hopefully. For a moment his companion brightened up. True, O King, he answered. It will ease the situation somewhat, at least I suppose so. But think of it, Toby. No Lakington, no Peterson. Nothing at all to play about with and keep one amused. You're very certain, Hugh. With a feeling almost of wonder, Sinclair glanced at the square-jawed, ugly profile beside him. There's many a slip. My dear old man, interrupted Drummond, there's only one cure for the proverb quoting disease. A dose of salts in the morning. For a while they raced on through the warm summer's night in silence, and it was not till they were within a mile of their destination that Sinclair spoke again. What are you going to do with them, Hugh? Who? Our Carl and little Henry? Drummond grinned gently. Why? I think that Carl and I will part amicably. Unless, of course, he gives me any trouble. And as for Lakington... We'll have to see about Lakington. The grin faded from his face as he spoke. We'll have to see about our little Henry, he repeated softly. And I can't help feeling, Toby, that between us we shall find a method of ridding the earth of such a thoroughly unpleasant fellow. You mean to kill him? grunted the other noncommittally. Just that and no more, responded Hugh. Tomorrow morning as ever is. But he's going to get the shock of his young life before it happens. He pulled the car up silently in the deep shadows of some trees, and the two men got out. Now, oh boy, you take her back to the elms. The ducal abode is close too. I remember in my extreme youth being worse than passing sick by those bushes over there after a, a juvenile bun-worry. "'But confound it all,' sputtered Toby Sinclair. "'Don't you want me to help you?' "'I do, by taking the buzz-box back. "'This little show is my shout.' "'Grumbling disconsolately, Sinclair stepped back into the car. "'You make me tired,' he remarked peevishly. "'I'll be damned if you get any wedding present out of me. "'In fact,' and he fired a Parthian shot at his leader. You won't have any wedding. I shall marry her myself. For a moment or two, Hugh stood watching the car as it disappeared down the road along which they had just come, while his thoughts turned to the girl now safely asleep in his flat in London. Another week, perhaps a fortnight, but no more. Not a day more and he had a pleasant conviction that Phyllis would not require much persuasion to come round to his way of thinking, even if she hadn't arrived there already. And so delightful was the train of thought thus conjured up that for a while Peterson and Lakington were forgotten. The roseate dreams of the young about to wed have been known to act similarly before. Wherefore, to the soldier's instinctive second nature, trained in the war and sharpened by his grim duel with the gang, 
must be given the credit of preventing the ringing of the wedding bells being postponed for good. The sudden snap of a twig close by, the sharp hiss of a compressed air rifle, seemed simultaneous with Hugh hurling himself flat on his face behind a sheltering bush. In reality, there was a fraction of a second between the actions which allowed the bullet to pass harmlessly over his body instead of finishing his career there and then. He heard it go zipping through the undergrowth as he lay motionless on the ground. Then, very cautiously, he turned his head and peered about. A man with an ordinary revolver is at a disadvantage against someone armed with a silent gun especially when he is not desirous of alarming the neighborhood. A shrub was shaking a few yards away, and on it Hugh fixed his half-closed eyes. If he lay quite still, the man, whoever he was, would probably assume the shot had taken effect, and come and investigate. Then things would be easier, as two or three Boches had discovered to their cost in days gone by. For two minutes he saw no one, then very slowly the branches parted and the white face of a man peered through. It was the chauffeur who usually drove the Rolls Royce, and he seemed unduly anxious to satisfy himself that all was well before coming nearer. The fame of Hugh Drummond had spread abroad amongst the satellites of Peterson. At last he seemed to make up his mind and came out into the open. Step by step he advanced towards the motionless figure, his weapon held in readiness to shoot at the faintest movement. But the soldier lay sprawling and inert, and by the time the chauffeur had reached him there was no doubt in that worthy's mind that, at last, this wretched meddler with things that concerned him not had been laid by the heels which was as unfortunate for the chauffeur as it had been for unwary Huns in the past. Contemptuously he rolled Drummond over, then noting the relaxed muscles and the inert limbs, he laid his gun on the ground preparatory to running through the victim's pockets. And the fact that such an action was a little more foolish than offering a man-eating tiger a peppermint lozenge did not trouble the chauffeur. In fact, nothing troubled him again. He got out one gasping cry of terror as he realized his mistake. Then he had a blurred consciousness of the world upside down, and everything was over. It was Olaki's most dangerous throw, carried out by gripping the victim's wrists and hurling his body over by a heave of the legs and nine times out of ten the result was a broken neck. This was one of the nine. For a while the soldiers stared at the body, frowning thoughtfully. To have killed the chauffeur was inconvenient, but since it had happened it necessitated a little rearrangement of his plans. The moon was setting and the night would become darker, so there was a good chance that Lakington would not recognize that the driver of his car had changed, and if he did, well, it would be necessary to forgo the somewhat theatrical entertainment he had staged for his benefit at the Elms. Bending over the dead man, he removed his long gray driving coat and cap, then, without a sound, he threaded his way through the bushes in search of the car. He found it about a hundred yards nearer the house, so well hidden in a small space off the road that he was almost on top of it before he realized the fact. To his relief it was empty, and placing his own cap in a pocket under the seat, he put on the driving coat of his predecessor. Then, with a quick glance to ensure that everything was in readiness for the immediate and rapid departure such as he imagined Lakington would desire, he turned and crept stealthily towards the house. Part 2. Laidley Towers was en fête. The Duchess, determined that every conceivable stunt should be carried out which would make the 
for the entertainment of her guests, had spared no pains to make the evening a success. The duke, bored to extinction, had been five times routed out of his study by his indefatigable spout, and was now, at the moment Hugh first came in sight of the house, engaged in shaking hands with a tall, aristocratic-looking Indian. "'Howdy do,' he murmured vacantly. "'What did you say the damned fellow's name was, my dear?' he whispered in a hoarse undertone to the duchess who stood beside him welcoming the distinguished foreigner we're so glad you could come mr ramdar remarked the duchess affably everyone is looking forward to your wonderful entertainment round her neck were the historic pearls and as the indian bowed low over her outstretched hand his eyes gleamed for a second your grace is too kind his voice was low and deep and he glanced thoughtfully around the circle of faces near him maybe the sands that come from the mountains that lie beyond the everlasting snows will speak the truth maybe the gods will be silent who knows who knows as if unconsciously his gaze rested on the duke who manfully rose to the occasion "'Precisely, Mr. Rum-Rum,' he murmured helpfully. "'Who, indeed? "'If they let you down, don't you know, "'perhaps you could show us a card trick.' "'He retired in confusion, "'abashed by the baleful stare of the Duchess, "'and the rest of the guests drew closer. "'The jazz band was having supper. "'The last of the perspiring tenants had departed, "'and now the... Bon Boche of the evening was about to begin. It had been the Marquis of Laidley himself who had suggested getting hold of this most celebrated performer, who had apparently never been in England before, and since the Marquis of Laidley's coming of age was the cause of the whole evening's entertainment, his suggestion had been hailed with acclamation. How he had heard about the Indian, and from whom, were points about which he was very vague but since he was very vague young man the fact elicited no comment the main thing was that here in the flesh was a dark mysterious performer of the occult and what more could a house party require and in the general excitement hugh drummond crept closer to the open window it was the duchess he was concerned with and her pearls and the arrival of the indian was not going to put him off his guard then suddenly his jaw tightened irma peterson had entered the room with young laidley do you want anything done mr ramdar asked the duchess the lights down or the windows shut no i thank you returned the indian the night is still there is no wind and the night is dark dark with strange thoughts that throng upon me as i drew nigh to the house whispering through the trees again he fixed his eyes on the duke what is your pleasure protector of the poor mine cried that pillar of the house of lords hurriedly stifling a yawn any old thing my dear fellow you'd much better ask one of the ladies as you will returned the other gravely but if the gods speak the truth and the sand does not lie i can say but what is written from a pocket in his robe he took a bag and two small bronze dishes and placing them on a table stood waiting i am ready he announced who first will learn of the things that are written on the scroll of fate i say had you better do it in private mr rum murmured the duke apprehensively i mean don't you know it might be a little embarrassing if the jolly old gods really did give tongue and i don't see anybody getting killed in the rush is there so much to conceal demanded the indian glancing round the group contempt in his brooding eyes in the lands that lie beyond the snows we have nothing to conceal there is nothing that can be concealed because all is known and it was at that moment that the intent watcher outside the window began to shake with silent mirth 
for the face was the face of the Indian's Ramdar, but the voice was the voice of Lakington. It struck him that the next ten minutes or so might be well worth while. The problem of removing the pearls from the Dutch's neck before such an assembly seemed to present a certain amount of difficulty even to such an expert as Henry. And Hugh crept a little nearer the window, so as to miss nothing. He crept near enough, in fact, to steal a look at Irma, and in doing so saw something, which made him rub his eyes and then grin once more. She was standing on the outskirts of the group, an evening wrap thrown loosely over her arm. She edged a step or two towards a table containing a bric-a-brac, the center of which was occupied, as a place of honor, by a small inlaid Chinese cabinet, a box standing on four grotesquely carved legs. It was a beautiful ornament, and he dimly remembered having heard its history, a story which reflected considerable glory on the predatory nature of a previous duke. At the moment, however, he was not concerned with its past history, but with its present fate, and it was the consummate quickness of the girl that made him rub his eyes. She took one lightning glance at the other guests, who were craning eagerly forward round the Indian. Then she half dropped her wrap on the table and picked it up again. It was done so rapidly, so naturally, that for a while Hugh thought he had made a mistake and then a slight rearrangement of her wrap to conceal a hard outline beneath. As she joined the others, dispelled any doubt. The small inlaid Chinese cabinet now standing on the table was not the one that had been here previously. The original was under Irma Peterson's cloak. Evidently the scene was now set. The necessary props were in position and Hugh waited with growing impatience for the principal event. But the principal performer seemed in no hurry. In fact, in his dry way, Lakington was thoroughly enjoying himself. In intimate inside knowledge of the skeletons that rattled their bones in the cupboards of most of those present enabled the gods to speak with disconcerting accuracy and as each victim insisted on somebody new facing the sands that came from beyond the mountains, the performance seemed likely to last indefinitely. At last a sudden delighted burst of applause came from the group, announcing the discomfiture of yet another guest, and with it Lakington seemed to tire of the amusement. Engrossed though he was in the anticipation of the main event, which was still to be staged. Drummond could not but admire the extraordinary accuracy of the character study. Not a detail had been overlooked, not a single flaw in Lakington's acting could he notice. It was an Indian who stood there, and when a few days later Hugh returned her pearls to the Duchess, for a long time neither she nor her husband would believe that Ram Dar had been an Englishman disguised and when they had last been persuaded of that fact and had been shown the two cabinets side by side it was the consummate boldness of the crime coupled with its extreme simplicity that staggered them for it was only in the reconstruction of it that the principal beauty of the scheme became apparent the element of luck was reduced to a minimum and at no stage of the proceeding was it impossible should things go amiss for Lakington to go as he had come, a mere Indian entertainer. Without the necklace, true, in such an event, but unsuspected and free to try again. As befitted his last, it was perhaps his greatest effort, and this was what happened as seen by the fascinated onlooker crouching near the window outside superbly disdainful the indian tipped back his sand into the lip and replacing it in his pocket stalked to the open window with arms outstretched he stared into the darkness seeming to gather strength from the gods whom he served 
Do your ears not hear the whispering of the night? He demanded, life rustling in the leaves, death moaning through the grasses. And suddenly he threw back his head and laughed, a fierce, mocking laugh. Then he swung round and faced the room. For a while he stood motionless, and Hugh, from the shelter of the bushes, wondered whether the two quick flashes that had come from his robe as he spoke, flashes such as a small electric torch will give, and which were unseen by anyone else, were a signal to the defunct chauffeur. Then a peculiar look came over the Indian's face as his eyes fell on the Chinese cabinet. Where did the protector of the poor obtain the sacred cabinet of the Chow Kings? He peered at it reverently, and the duke coughed. One of my ancestors picked it up somewhere, he answered apologetically. Fashioned with the blood of men, guarded with their lives, and one of your ancestors picked it up? The duke withered completely under the biting scorn of the words, and seemed about to say something. But the Indian had turned away, and his long, delicate fingers were hovering over the box. There is power in this box, he continued, and his voice was low and thoughtful. Years ago, a man who came from the land where dwells the great brooding spirit told me of this thing. I wonder... I wonder. With gleaming eyes he stared in front of him, and a woman shuddered audibly. What is it supposed to do? she ventured, timidly. In that box lies the power unknown to mortal man, though the priests of the temple city have sometimes discovered it before they passed beyond. Length, you know, and height, and breadth, but in that box lies more. "'You don't mean the fourth dimension, do you?' demanded a man incredulously. "'I know not what you call it, Sahib,' said the Indian quietly, "'but it is the power which renders visible or invisible at will.' For a moment Hugh felt an irresistible temptation to shout the truth through the window and give Lakington away. Then his curiosity to see the next move in the game conquered the wish, and he remained silent. So perfect was the man's acting that, in spite of having seen the substitution of the boxes, in spite of knowing the whole thing was bunkum, he felt he could almost believe it himself. And as far as the others, without exception, they were craning forward eagerly, staring first at the Indian and then at the box. I say, that's a bit of a tall order, isn't it, Mr. Rumbar? protested the Duke a little feebly. Do you mean to say you can put something into that box and it disappears? From the mortal eye, protector of the poor, though it is still there, answered the Indian, and that only too for a time. Then it reappears again. So runs the legend. Well, stuff something in it and let's see, cried young Laidley, starting forward, only to pause before the Indian's outstretched arm. Stop, Sahib, he ordered sternly. To you that box is nothing. To others, of whom I am one of the least, it is sacred beyond words. He stalked away from the table, and the guests disappointment showed on their faces oh but mr ramdar pleaded the duchess can't you satisfy our curiosity after all you've said for a moment he seemed on the point of refusing outright then he bowed a deep oriental bow your grace he said with dignity for centuries that box contained the jewels precious beyond words of the reigning queens of the chow dynasty they were wrapped in silver and gold tissue of which this is a feeble modern substitute from a cummerbund under his robe he drew a piece of shining material the appearance of which was greeted with cries of feminine delight you would not ask me to commit sacrilege Quietly he replaced the material in his belt and turned away, 
and Hugh's eyes glistened at the cleverness with which the man was acting. Whether they believed it or not, there was not a soul in the room by this time who was not consumed with the eagerness to put the Chinese cabinet to the test. Supposing you took my pearls, Mr. Ramdar, said the Duchess diffidently. I know that compared to such historic jewels they are poor, but perhaps it would not be sacrilege. Not a muscle on Lakington's face twitched, though it was the thing he had been playing for. Instead he seemed to be sunk in thought while the Duchess continued pleading and the rest of the party added their entreaties. At length she undid the fastening and held the necklace out, but he only shook his head. You ask a great thing of me, your grace, he said. Only by the exercise of my power can I show you this secret, even if I can show you at all. And you are unbelievers, he paced slowly to the window, ostensibly to commune with the gods on the subject, more materially to flash once again the signal into the darkness. Then, as if he had decided suddenly, he swung round. I will try, he announced briefly, and the Duchess headed the chorus of delight. Will the presences stand back, and you, your grace, take that? He handed her the piece of material. No hand but yours must touch the pearls. Wrap them up inside the silver and gold. Aloofly he watched the process. Now advance alone and open the box. Place the pearls inside. Now shut and lock it. Obediently the Duchess did as she was bid. Then she stood waiting for further instructions. But apparently by this time the great brooding spirit was beginning to take effect. Singing a monotonous, harsh chant, the Indian knelt on the floor and poured some powder into the little brazier. He was still close to the open window, and finally he sat down with his elbows on his knees and his head rocking to and fro in his hands. Less light, less light, the words seemed to come from a great distance. Ventriloquism, in a mild way, was one of Lakington's accomplishments, and as the lights went out, a greenish sputtering flame rose from the brazier. A heavy, odorous smoke filled the room, but framed and motionless in the eerie light sat the Indian, staring fixedly in front of him. After a time, the chant began again. It grew and swelled in volume till the singer grew frenzied and beat his head with his hands. Then abruptly it stopped. Place the box upon the floor, he ordered, in the light of the sacred fire. Hugh saw the Duchess kneel down on the opposite side of the brazier and place the box on the floor, while the faces of the guests, strange and ghostly in the green light, peered like specters out of the heavy smoke. This was undoubtedly a show worth watching. Open the box. Harshly the words rang through the silent room, and with fingers that trembled a little, the Duchess turned the key and threw back the lid. "'Why, it's empty!' she cried in amazement, and the guests craned forward to look. "'Put not your hand inside!' cried the Indian in sudden warning, "'or perchance it will remain empty.' The Duchess rapidly withdrew her hand and stared incredulously through the smoke at his impassive face. "'Did I not say there was power in the box?' he said, dreamily the power to render invisible the power to render visible thus came protection to the jewels of the chow queens that's all right mr ramdar said the duchess a little apprehensively there may be power in the box but my pearls don't seem to be the indian laughed none but you has touched the cabinet your grace none but you must touch it till the pearls return they are there now but not for mortal eyes to see which incidentally was no more than the truth look oh sahibs look but do not touch 
see that to your vision the box is empty he waited motionless while the guests thronged round with expressions of amazement and hugh safe from view in the thick sweet-smelling smoke came even nearer in his excitement it is enough cried the indian suddenly shut the box your grace and lock it as before now place it on the table whence it came is it there yes the duchess voice came out of the green fog go not too near he continued warningly the gods must have space the gods must have space again the harsh chant began at times swelling to a shout at times dying away to a whisper and it was during one of these latter periods that a low laugh instantly checked disturbed the room it was plainly audible and someone irritably said be quiet it was not repeated which afforded hugh at any rate no surprise for it had been irma peterson who had laughed and it might have been hilarity or it might have been a signal the chanting grew frenzied and more frenzied more and more powder was thrown on the brazier till dense fog on the thick vapor were rolling through the room completely obscuring everything save the small space around the brazier and the indian's tense face poised above it bring the box your grace he cried harshly and once more the duchess knelt in the circle of light with a row of dimly seen faces above her open but as you value your pearls touch them not excitedly she threw back the lid and a chorus of cries greeted the appearance of the gold and silver tissue at the bottom of the box they're here mr ramdar in the green light the indian's sombre eyes stared round the group of dim faces did i not say he answered that there was power in the box but in the name of that power unknown to you i warn you do not touch those pearls till the light has burned low in the brazier if you do they will disappear never to return watch but do not touch slowly he backed towards the window unperceived in the general excitement and hugh dodged rapidly towards the car it struck him that the seance was over and he had just time to see lakington snatch something which appeared to have been let down by a string from above before turning into the bushes and racing for the car as it was he was only a second or two in front of the other and the last vision he had through a break in the trees before they were spinning smoothly down the deserted road was an open window in laidly towers from which dense volumes of vapor poured steadily out of the house party behind waiting for the light to burn low in the brazier he could see no sign through the opaque wall of green fog it took five minutes so he gathered afterwards from a member of the house party before the light had burned sufficiently low for the duchess to consider it safe to touch the pearls in various stages of asphyxiation the assembled guests had peered at the box while the cynical comments of the men were rightly treated by the ladies with the contempt they deserved was the necklace not there wrapped in its gold and silver tissue where a few minutes before there had been nothing some trick of that beastly light remarked the duke peevishly tore heaven's sake throw the damn thing out the window don't be a fool john retorted his spouse if you could do this sort of thing the house of lords might be some use to somebody and when two minutes later they stared horror-struck at a row of ordinary marbles laboriously unwrapped from a piece of gold and silver tissue the duke's pungent agreement with his wife's sentiment passed uncontradicted in fact it is to be understood that over the scene which followed it was best to draw a decent veil part three drummond hunched low over the wheel 
in his endeavor to conceal his identity from the man behind, knew nothing of that at the time. Every nerve was centered on eluding the pursuit he thought was a certainty. For the thought of Lakington, when everything was prepared for his reception, being snatched from his clutches even by the majesty of the law was more than he could bear, and for much the same reason he did not want to have to deal with him until the elms was reached. The staging there was so much more effective. But Lakington was far too busy to bother with the chauffeur. One snarling curse as they had entered, for not having done as he had been told, was the total of their conversation during the trip. During the rest of the time, the transformation to the normal kept Lakington busy, and Hugh could see him reflected in the windscreen, removing the makeup from his face and changing his clothes. Even now he was not quite clear how the trick had been worked. That there had been two cabinets, that was clear. One false, the other the real one. That they had been changed at the crucial moment by the girl Irma was also obvious. But how had the pearls disappeared in the first case, and then apparently reappeared again? For one thing he was quite certain, whatever was inside the parcel of gold and silver tissue, which, for all he knew, they might be still staring at, it was not the historic necklace. And he was still puzzling it over in his mind when the car swung into the drive at the elms. Change the wheels as usual, snapped Lakington as he got out, and Hugh bent forward to conceal his face, then report to me in the central room. And out of the corner of his eye, Hugh watched him enter the house with one of the Chinese cabinets collapsed in his hand. Toby, he remarked to that worthy, whom he found mournfully eating a ham sandwich in the garage, I feel sort of sorry for our Henry. He has just had the whole complete ducal outfit guessing. Dressed up as an Indian, he's come back here with a box containing the Duchess's pearls, or I'll heat my hat. And feeling real good with himself, and now instead of enjoying life he's got to have a little chat with me. Did you drive him back? demanded Sinclair, producing a bottle of bass. Owing to the sudden decease of his chauffeur, I had to, murmured Hugh. And he's a very angry over something. Let's go on the roof. Silently, they both climbed the ladder, which had been placed in readiness, to find Peter Darrell and the American detective already in position. A brilliant light streamed out through the glass dome, and the inside of the central room was clearly visible. He's already talked to what he thinks is you, whispered Peter ecstatically, and he is not in the best of tempers. Hugh glanced down, and a grim smile flickered round his lips. In the three chairs sat the motionless bound figures so swathed in rope that only the tops of their heads were visible, just as Lakington had left him and Toby and Algy earlier in the evening. The only moving thing in the room was the criminal himself, and at the moment he was seated at the table with the Chinese cabinet in front of him. He seemed to be doing something inside with a penknife, and all the time he kept up a running commentary to the three bound figures. Well, you young swine, have you enjoyed your night? A feeble moan came from one of the chairs. Spirit broken at last, is it? With a quick turn of his wrist, he prized open two flaps of wood and folded them back against the side. Then he lifted out a parcel of gold and silver tissue from underneath. My hat, muttered Hugh. What a fool I was not to think of it. Just a false bottom actuated by closing the lid and a similar parcel in the other cabinet. But the American, whistling gently to himself, had his eyes fixed on the rope of wonderful pearls which Lakington was holding lovingly in his hands. So easy, you scum, continued Lakington, 
and you thought to pit yourself against me. Though if it hadn't been for Irma, he rose and stood in front of the chair where he had last left Drummond. It might have been awkward. She was quick, Captain Drummond, and that fool of a chauffeur failed to carry out my orders and create a diversion. You will see what happens to people who fail to carry out my orders in a minute, and after that you will never see anything again. Say he's a dream, that guy, muttered the American. What pearls are those he's got? The Duchess of Lampshires, whispered Hugh, lifted right under the noses of the whole Bally House party. With a grunt, the detective rearranged his chewing gum. Then once more the four watchers on the roof glued their eyes to the glass, and the sight they saw a moment or two afterwards stirred even the phlegmatic Mr. Green. A heavy door was swinging slowly open, apparently of its own volition, though Hugh, stealing a quick glance at Lakington, saw that he was pressing some small studs in a niche in one of the walls, then he looked back at the door and stared dumbfounded. It was the mysterious cupboard of which Phyllis had spoken to him, but nothing he had imagined from her words had prepared him for the reality. It seemed to be literally crammed to overflowing with the most priceless loot. Gold vessels of fantastic and beautiful shapes littered the floor, while on the shelves were arranged the most wonderful collection of precious stones, which shone and scintillated in the electric light till their glitter almost blinded the watchers. Shades of Chu Chin Chow, Alibaba, and the Forty Pundits, muttered Toby. The damn man's a genius. The pearls were carefully placed in a position of honor, and for a few moments Lakington stood gloating over his collection. Each thing obtained by my brain, my hands, all mine, mine. His voice rose to a shout. And you pit your puny wits against me? With a laugh he crossed the room and once more pressed the studs. The door swung slowly to and closed without a sound, while Lakington still shook with silent mirth. And now, he resumed, rubbing his hands, we will prepare your bath, Captain Drummond. He walked over to the shelves where the bottles were ranged and busied himself with some preparations. And while it is getting ready, we will just deal with the chauffeur who neglected his orders. A few minutes he bent over the chemicals, and then he poured the mixture into the water which half-filled the long bath at the end of the room. A faintly acid smell rose to the four men above, and the liquid turned a pale green. "'I told you I had all sorts of baths, didn't I?' continued Lakington. "'Some for those who are dead, and some for those who are alive. This is the latter sort.' and has the great advantage of making the bather wish it was one of the former. He stirred the liquid gently with a long glass rod. About five minutes before we're quite ready, he announced. Just time for the chauffeur. He went to the speaking tube, down which he blew. Somewhat naturally, there was no answer, and Lakington frowned. A stupid fellow, he remarked softly but there is no hurry. I will deal with him later. You certainly will, muttered Hugh on the roof, and perhaps not quite so much later as you think, friend Henry. But Lakington had returned to the chair which contained, as he thought, his chief enemy and was standing beside it with an unholy joy shining on his face. And since I have to deal with him later, Captain Drummond, DSO, MC, I may as well deal with you now. Then it will be your friend's turn. I am going to cut the ropes and carry you, while you're so numbed that you can't move, to the bath. Then I shall drop you in, Captain Drummond, and when afterwards you pray for death, I shall mercifully spare your life, for a while. 
He slashed at the ropes behind the chair and the four men craned forward expectantly. There, snarled Lakington. I'm ready for you, you young swine. And even as he spoke, the words died away on his lips and with a dreadful cry he sprang back for with a dull heavy thud the body of the dead German Heinrich rolled off the chair and sprawled at his feet. My God, screamed Lakington, what has happened? I, I... He rushed to the bell and peeled it frantically, and with a smile of joy Hugh watched his frenzied terror. No one came in answer to the ring, and Lakington dashed to the door, only to recoil into the room with a choking noise in his throat. Outside in the hall stood four masked men, each with a revolver pointing at his heart. My cue, muttered Hugh, and you understand, fellows, don't you? He's my meat. The next moment he had disappeared down the ladder, and the three remaining watchers stared motionless at the grim scene, for Lakington had shut the door and was crouching by the table, his nerve utterly gone, and all the while the puffed, bloated body of the German sprawled on the floor. Slowly the door into the hall opened, and with a scream of fear Lakington sprang back. Standing in the doorway was Hugh Drummond, and his face was grim and merciless. "'You sent for your chauffeur, Henry Lakington?' he remarked quietly. "'I am here.' "'What do you mean?' muttered Lakington thickly. "'I drove you back from Laidley Towers tonight,' said Hugh with a slight smile." The proper man was foolish and had to be killed. He advanced a few steps into the room, and the other shrank back. You look frightened, Henry. Can it be that the young swine's wits are, after all, better than yours? What do you want? gasped Lakington through dried lips. I want you, Henry, just you. Hitherto you've always used gangs of your ruffians against me. Now my gang occupies this house, but I'm not going to use them. It's going to be just you and I. Stand up, Henry, stand up, as I have always stood up to you. He crossed the room and stood in front of the cowering man. Take half, take half, he screamed. I've got treasure, I've... And Drummond hit him with a fearful blow on the mouth. I shall take all, Henry, to return to the rightful owners. Boys, he raised his voice, carry out these other two and undo them. The four masked men came in and carried out the two chairs. The intimidated rabbit, Henry, and the kindly gentleman you put to guard Miss Benton, he remarked as the door closed. So now we may regard ourselves as being alone. Just you and I, and one of us, Lakington, you devil in a human form, is going into that bath. But the bath means death, shrieked Lakington, death in agony. That will be unfortunate for one who goes in, said Drummond, taking a step towards him. You would murder me? half sobbed the terrified man. No, Lakington, I'm not going to murder you. A gleam of hope came into the other's eyes. But I'm going to fight you in order to decide which of us two ceases to adorn the earth. That is, if your diagnosis of the contents of the bath is correct. What little gleam of pity I might have possessed for you has been completely extinguished by your present exhibition of nauseating cowardice. Fight, you worm, fight, or I'll throw you in. And Lakington fought. The sudden complete turning of the tables had for the moment destroyed his nerve. Now, at Drummond's words, he recovered himself. There was no mercy on the soldier's face, and in his inmost heart, Lakington knew that the end had come. For strong and wiry though he was, he was no match for the other. Relentlessly, he felt himself being forced towards the deadly liquid he had prepared for Drummond. And as the irony of the thing struck him, 
the sweat broke out on his forehead and he cursed aloud at last he backed into the edge of the bath and his struggles redoubled but still there was no mercy on the soldier's face and he felt himself being forced farther and farther over the liquid until he was only held from falling into it by drummond's grip on his throat then just before the grip relaxed and he went under the soldier spoke once henry lakington he said the retribution is just drummond sprang back and the liquid closed over the wretched man's head but only for a second with a dreadful cry lakington leaped out and even drummond felt a momentary qualm of pity for the criminal's clothes were already burnt through to the skin and his face or what was left of it was a shining copper color mad with agony he dashed to the door and flung it open the four men outside aghast at the spectacle recoiled and let him through and the kindly mercy which lakington had never shown to anyone in his life was given to him at the last blindly he groped his way up the stairs and as drummond got to the door the end came someone must have put in gear the machinery which worked on the fifth step or perhaps it was automatic for suddenly a heavy steel weight revolving on an arm whizzed out from the wall and struck lakington behind the neck without a sound he fell forward and the weight unchecked clanged sullenly home and thus did the invention of which he was proudest break the inventor's own neck truly the retribution was just that only leaves peterson remarked the american coming into the hall at that moment and lighting a cigar that only leaves peterson agreed drummond and the girl he added as an afterthought End of chapter 11